five staples. The world came to know me as C.S. Lewis. Perhaps you've read my books. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is the most famous, but there's one story that's not so well known. It's my story. And who better to tell it than me? Cheers. Hey, Jack, now stop. Don't disturb your father. Oh. Boys! Your mother loves you very much. <laughs> At 14, I ceased to be a Christian. She was the first woman to speak to my blood. I love the smell of bunting. And I was undone. Have you nothing to say in your defense? William Kirkpatrick, a great knock. Either there's no God behind the universe, a God indifferent to good and evil, or worse, an evil God. Do you believe that logic and reason bring forth indisputable truth? I do. And are your moral and aesthetic judgments valid and meaningful? They are. For the first time, I examined myself with a serious, practical purpose. What I found appalled me. How could a mere man be called a great moral teacher and say the sort of things Jesus said? Such as? That night, as I read Fantasties, my imagination was baptized. The rest of me took a little longer. Now that movie is now, um, I believe, able to be seen on YouTube um, for a fee. And we thought that in a wee while we might have an evening where we all come here and we stick it on the big screen. So if you're interested in that, please have a chat. Yeah, yeah. See those hands? Lovely. And another one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Have a chat to man. No, actually, don't worry about it. We won't have a chat to management. Looks like we're on. So we'll sort out a day. Well. When I was a young guy, a few years ago, probably eight or nine, I was given a box set. Don't laugh. Who was that? It's disgraceful. Put you on the prayer list. Um, I, it's not that funny. I was given a box set of the Chronicles of Narnia for my birthday. And over the next few months, I disappeared from... Um, early 1970s life in Whanganui into this alternative world that ran parallel to our own. I was enthralled, so much so that I've read a number of these, um, reread them over the years. They're fantastic books. And in these stories, four young kids are farmed out to the countryside during the Blitz during, in the war. And Lewis had several such children to stay in his rural Oxford home. In his attic, they discover this kind of what we would now in the science fiction age call a portal, where you can go to another world, a world populated by, amongst other things, talking animals. 
the most intriguing of which is this fellow, Aslan the lion, who sacrifices himself in a battle with evil and is later resurrected. Sound like anyone we know. There are battles with the white witch, who likes keeping everything in winter and can turn creatures into stone. It's a good trick. There's epic sea voyages and the like in which the children grow up and become kings and queens. Several of them have been made into movies. The final book, called The Last Battle, finishes with the forces of good, led by Aslan, finally conquering the forces of evil, led by the White Witch. I remember reading it for the first time and wishing it were true, at the same time thinking that it wasn't. Now it's my fervent hope. The author C.S. Lewis also wrote a number of Christian theological books that were intended for a broad audience. And th these arose from his time in the Second World War when he was doing radio broadcasts. So the bombs were falling in, during the Blitz and people were listening to his talks. They weren't anti-German propaganda. So that on, the le uh, on that side there, that's them in the tubes underneath London where everyone fled to. And on the other side is a picture of the fires in the next morning. They weren't an anti-German propaganda or rant, but he talked rather on issues of suffering and loss and how to persevere and why we think and feel the things we do about God. A senior military guy at the time, Air Chief Marshals, Marshal Sir Donald Hardman, wrote this about those talks. The war, the whole point of life, everything seemed to be just a waste. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. And Lewis gave us that. Over a dozen of these books emerged, the most famous of which are Mere Christianity and the Screwtape Letters. They've been hugely influential books, particularly in the evangelical branch of the faith, which includes Baptists, Brethren, Pentecostals, Low Church Anglicans, Presbyterians. I, I used to have a, 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 a tape of um, the Screwtape Letters being read by John Cleese which is just fantastic. But I'm going to do my best, John Cleese, just to give you a wee flavour. The best thing, where it is possible, is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. When the patient is an adult recently reconverted to the enemy's party, like your man, this is best done by encouraging him to remember or to think he remembers the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, irregular. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. One of their poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. 
this is exactly the sort of prayer that we want. And since it bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are very far advanced in the enemy's service, clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. At the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals, and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. I could preach on that for quite a while. For me, as a young believer, mere Christianity helped me to solidify my faith, to put down some roots, as being a rational, solid response to the call of God in my life. I needed to believe the things that we say are true, are in fact true, rather than just some emotional longing or wishful thinking. It was not, as a new believer, intuitively, intuitively obvious to me that God existed, was good, and wanted to connect with me or anyone else. And I know for many of you the situation is different, but it wasn't for me. And when I have gone through periods of doubt in my life, I have gone back to this book and found it very helpful. Now the screw tape letters are just extraordinary. I don't do them justice. They purport to be letters exchanged between a junior demon named Wormwood and his more senior demon, Uncle Screwtape. Wormwood's role is to usher his human patient away from Christian truth. So you heard that little reading, he's trying to sort of just fog his prayer life. And if he cannot imagine, manage that, then to make his faith an exercise in futility. Listen to this. My dear Wormwood, I sometimes wonder whether you think that you've been sent into the world for your own amusement. I gather not from your miserably inadequate report, but from that of the infernal police, that the patient's behaviour during the first air raid has been the worst possible. He had been very frightened and thought himself a great coward and therefore feels no pride but he has done everything his duty demanded and perhaps a bit, bit more. Against this disaster, all you can produce on the credit side is a burst of ill temper with a dog that tripped him up, some excessive smoking and the forgetting of a prayer. What is the use of whining to me about your difficulties? If you are proceeding on the enemy's idea of justice and suggesting that your opportunities and intentions should be taken into account, then I am not sure that a charge of heresy does not lie against you. At any rate, you will soon find that the justice of hell is purely realistic and concerned only with results. Bring us back food or be food yourself. Jesus wants a brother or a sister. Satan wants to consume or use us. There's a lot in that. Lewis has had massive insight into the human condition, especially the struggles of people trying to live out their faith, especially their newfound faith. I use bits and pieces from these books um, in my pastoral conversations, in my sermons, 
all the time, and most times they spring from a scriptural root. Only a little while ago I was chatting with someone who was very anxious about their future, something that I guess afflicts all of us different times. Matthew 7, Jesus talking about worry, famously said in verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And in Screwtape Letters, uncle and nephew have this conversation about how can they make us worry about multiple alternative futures, many of which are mutually exclusive. So, for example, if I, if I was older than I am, which I'm rapidly becoming, with dodgy hips, I might be concerned about, well, I'm going to have to go into rest home care and all that entails. At the same time, I might be worried about how am I going to get upstairs to my bed at night in my current home. Only one of those scenarios can exist at any one time. But you can worry about both of them. Looking at the Christian life through your personal demon's eyes gives you a really interesting perspective. They are both hilarious and thought-provoking because you can see yourself in them. Lewis's writings have been a real gift to me over the years, and there are many like me. And his life is pretty interesting too. He was born in 1898 in Northern Ireland, but has spent his entire adult life in England as a student and then later a lecturer at Canterbury or Oxford. And he wrote that he always felt like an outsider. As the Irish were seen back in those days as a bit like us colonials were, but second rate, not kosher, no, not quite as good. His mother's death when he was nine was a, a shattering experience, made worse by the emotional neglect of his dad. And he was packed off to various boarding schools. But he found comfort in immersing himself in the myths, legends and literature of the Vikings. And then later on, he moved to the literature of the Irish and um, the Greeks as well. And that was a sort of a safe space. His intellect was fed and he could escape into this interior world where everything was okay. Now, he arrived to study at Oxford in 1917 and was enlisted into the army shortly thereafter. And he was made a second lieutenant. He was deployed to the Western Front on his 19th birthday. 19th. Six months later, he was wounded by friendly shellfire. In other words, shellfire that was British. And they reckon um, in the research that's gone on for the First World War that maybe 30% of casualties were friendly shellfire. I imagine friendly shellfire hurt as much as um, unfriendly shellfire, but there you go. He recovered and was released from the army. In the end of 1918, he returned to Oxford. His dad never came to visit him while he was recovering. He'd been raised in the Anglican Church of Ireland, but what faith he had was declining by his mid-teens, and by 1919, when he was 21, he was a committed atheist, who described himself as angry at God for not existing and for creating the world in the first place. 
Losing his mother, experience of boarding school, and then what he saw at the war, had driven him to that conviction. However, when he was in the army, he and his roommate, a guy called Paddy Moore, both 19-year-olds, promised each other they would look after the other's family if they were the survivor. Well, Paddy did die at the front. And Lewis looked after his mum for the next 25 years. When she was eventually admitted to dementia care for the last five years of her life, he visited her every day. Impressive. As no one else knew of that promise that they had exchanged. So he could easily have walked away from it. They became like mother and son to each other. Lewis was an outstanding student, and in 1925, he was hired as a tutor by Oxford University. He was good friends with Tolkien, of Lord of the Rings fame. And within a few years, he was, when he was 32, he became a Christian. He turned to faith. Not for him, the sort of dancing across the fields of orchestral music, flowing in the background to be embraced by Jesus, he described himself as the most reluctant convert in Christendom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape, were his words. And when I first read this, I thought, yeah, I get this guy. God had gotten a hold of him and would never let him go. With his academic skills and interests, he tore into theology with the great gift of being able to express complex ideas in ways that people could understand. Many people like Lewis had abandoned their faith in the face of the horrors and losses of World War I. Prior to that conflict, there was this dominant idea that we're all getting better and better and better, and it was inside the church and outside, and inside the church it was, well, we're all building the kingdom of God here, and then Jesus will return. Well, that idealism died in the trenches, in the cloud of mustard gas smoke, and with the slaughter. However, Lewis was someone who'd gone through that experience and found a vibrant Christian faith afterwards. And God used that experience during the Second World War to encourage his people with hope through those radio broadcasts I talked about before. His life experience gave him insight into the realities of suffering and the credibility to be able to talk about it. His background as an atheist enabled him to communicate with sceptics and address their concerns and doubts. He understood them, and as I was, in a way that born, born and bred Christians cannot. And he had this ability to communicate. Well, he became very famous, sold lots and lots of books. This is, um, this is one of them. As you can see, they're quite big. No, I'm lying, it's 11. They're quite, they're quite okay to read. And then he sold tons in the States. And he got truckloads of fan mail, which he tried to keep up with. And one of those fans was this divorced mother of two from New York, Joy Gresham, who he got to know as a really good mate and really good sparring partner. Both adult converts, both intellectuals who loved to sort of chew over ideas and argue, both writers. Her husband had abandoned her for a younger model, 
And to enable her to remain in the UK, Lewis married her in a civil ceremony. They didn't at the stage live as man and wife. She later fell ill with bone cancer. And in going through the grief of that, Lewis, this donnish guy who hung around with men most of his life, began to realise that actually he truly loved this woman. And quite beautifully, they married in her hospital bed. He went through the experience a few years later than that of losing her. And he wrote about the rawness and the pain of that experience. He raised her boys from a previous marriage until his death four years later. He died in 1963. The same day that Aldous Huxley died and the same day that JFK was assassinated. So didn't quite get the splash that it might have. His brother Warney, that he'd lived with his entire adult life, then raised Joy Gresham's two sons to adulthood. Now, there are some Christian teachers who will say that God sends us trials such as losing our mothers at a young age or wars or losing our wives to cancer as a sort of test, as a sort of way to build character in us, to make us better people. That's what I think of that. Sure, trials are testing and challenging and you can grow through them. But that doesn't make God the tester or the challenger. Otherwise, we're making him into the operating cause of war, of cancer, sexual abuse, to name but three trials that people may experience. We know that suffering produces character and sometimes a lot of good can emerge as it did in Lewis's life. But God is not some 10-year-old boy tormenting a spider with a pencil to see how it reacts to it. When we think about our ideas of, of what life is about, we've got to think, okay, so what does this make God into? And that is not our God. The key verse here is Romans 8.28, which has got lost, but anyway. We know that all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I think we can see this in Lewis's life. Losing his wife, his mother, narrowly surviving the trenches gave him empathy for those who suffered. Sure. And his God-given ability and intellect and talent to communicate took that experience far and wide to the benefit of many people. Character and experience and talent came together and good came out of that. Likewise, I see the fingerprints of God in bringing a lost and depressed young man together with his friend's mum who'd lost her son in the war. God looking out for the emotional orphan and the grieving mum and then being able to find new family together. I see huge benefit in Lewis's experience of atheism as it gave him a head start in communicating with other like-minded people. God is not the cause of our loss and our pain. But he can and does make good come from it for those who are called to be his children. 
these threads of Lewis's life are being sort of woven together. It's creating, God is creating a marvellous tapestry from that. And so I guess the, the challenge or the point I want to draw out from this is can you see that in your own life? Have you sat down and reflected on the ways that these different threads of experience and talent and people and pain have been woven together to make something new? How has God used your talents, interests and experience? Because he will have. It's in the nature. And then looking forward, what opportunities do you see in 2022 for those things to be used again? Amen. Thank you. Would the music team come up, please? We've got one final song.